You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Our story today comes from a long, long time ago in the land of Japan. And the center of the story is Tetsugen, the Buddhist monk. Now, Tetsugen had a big idea. He wanted to translate all of the Buddhist sutras, all of the teachings of the Buddha about loving kindness. He wanted to translate them into Japanese, put them on woodcuts so they could be reproduced and printed so that the Buddha's teachings in Japanese could spread throughout his land. Up until that point, each copy of the sutras had to be hand transcribed and copied. And he imagined a time when anyone in Japan would have access to the sutras in their own language. So as you can imagine, this was a huge project that Tetsugen wanted to take on, and it required a huge amount of money. So he began his project by traveling all over the land and collecting donations for his great and worthy cause. There were a few folks who were able to give several hundred gold coins to him to buoy his project, but for the most part, he collected small gifts here and there, and he would thank each donor with equal gratitude. It took about 10 years, and finally, Tetsugen had enough money to begin the project. But then the Uji River overflowed, and famine followed. There wasn't enough food for people to eat. Folks were wandering all over, searching for food. Some were dying of hunger right in front of him. And seeing this, Tetsugen freely gave away all of the funds he had collected and began again from zero. Several years later, just as Tetsugen had again reached the point where he had raised enough money to begin his project, again, floods came, and famine came, and disease came, and he freely gave away all the money he had collected, again, for the good of his people. It was the third time, and Tetsugen began again. On the first day of this third effort, he took up his place at the approach to the busy Sanjo Bridge and started to request donations of people coming by. The very first person to come by was a samurai, someone who looked regal, sturdy, and who decided to ignore Tetsugen as best as he could. Tetsugen earnestly asked him for funds for his great project, but the samurai pretended not to even see this humble Buddhist monk. But Tetsugen followed him. Please contribute, he said, even if it's just a small amount. No, I will not do it. Please? No. Now this dialogue continued for four miles. I'm imagining that's about an hour, right? Maybe a little less, a little more, depending on how fast they're walking. But Tetsugen is right there asking again and again for support for this worthy project. And finally, worn down by this monk, the hard-hearted samurai, tossed a penny back to him. And Tetsugen said, thank you. Thank you so much for this gift. And the samurai was confused. How could this monk who had followed him for four miles accept the gift of a thrown penny with so much gratitude? What was going on? And he said, honorable monk, you must tell me why you are so happy after following me all this way and only receiving a penny. 
Well, Tetsugan said, today is the first day that I have been out asking for donations on this third effort of mine. It's the first day, and you're the first person I've asked to give. If I hadn't been able to get this first penny, maybe a doubt would have come into my mind. But now that I've received your gift, I firmly believe that I will be able to accomplish this project. That's why I'm so happy, Tetsugan responded. And he took up his place again at the beginning of the bridge. All in all, it took over 20 years for Tetsugan to complete his project, to go ahead and create those printing blocks which allowed the teachings of the Buddha to come to Japan in the language of Japanese. He wanted everyone to know what a world could look like filled with loving kindness. So you can see this first edition of the sutras printed in Japanese. They exist today at the Obaku Monastery in Kyoto. And there's a plaque there, I'm told, that says something like this. In his lifetime, Tetsugen, the monk, published three sets of the Buddha's teachings, but only one is visible, the one before you today in the case. What do you think that means? In his lifetime, he published three sets of the Buddha's teachings, but only one is visible there in those woodcuts. Throughout his life, Tetsugen lived the sutras. He noticed the suffering all around him, and he responded with an open heart, giving all that he had in the moment to do what he could. Tetsugen lived his faith. May this be what we do as well, starting again and again and again. Amen. So a few Sundays ago, after Rabbi Michael Latz and Rabbi Ariel Lacock Rosenberg taught Judaism 101 here at First Universalist, as our two communities are getting to know one another and really getting serious about the possibilities of co-locating in this building, what that would look like and building relationships, after that class, I ran into some church members downstairs in the social hall, and they were talking about Game of Thrones. It's a hot topic these days, right? It's season eight, it's the final season, and they were like, do you watch, Justin, are you into Game of Thrones? Are you totally, and I'm like, I don't, I don't watch that show. Um, my wife and I watched the first episode, I think, or the first two, and then we we're like, this is incredibly violent, and we're not gonna watch anymore. So if you wanna talk about Game of Thrones, season one, I'm your guy. Or first, first, first episode of season one, like, I'm your guy. Otherwise, I don't watch it at all. Uh, so then the conversation sort of wandered into some other shows that we'd watched over the years, things we liked on TV, and we ended up talking about Lost. So I know many of you remember the show Lost. This is, this is a while ago now, this show with multiple timelines and time travel and all these mysteries that just were unsolved really forever. Like the show ended and you're like, what? Um, but, but I was into it for a long time. And this guy, as we had this conversation, he's like, you preached on Lost. I was like, really? Oh yeah, I did. It came back to me, the sermon came back to me. He's like, I remember that sermon. And I'm curious, this is like 10 years ago, how many of you remember when I preached a sermon on Lost? Yeah, oh, a few of you. Oh, so this is a little bit, two of you, it's a little bit better than the first service. No one remembered in the first service, and that's fine. Like, I doubt you'll remember what Jen or I say, like, an hour after Sunday is kind of how it goes. You're here for the experience, like, I don't know what they said, it was something about that thing. At the... So that's fine. So here's the gist of, of Lost. In, this, in the fourth season of Lost, there was an episode called The Constant, possibly one of the greatest episodes of all television of all time. I'm, I'm throwing down that gauntlet. You can disagree with me and tell me I'm wrong after the service, but I think it's an amazing, you could just, it's a standalone episode. You could just watch it and take it in. 
In this episode, a man named Desmond is traveling back and forth between 1996 and 2004. So he's moving between these two times. And as he moves between those two times, those two worlds, he's becoming more and more disoriented and mentally unstable and starting to unravel. As viewers, we know that if he can't get grounded, if he can't hold on to something that connects him between these two worlds and holds him steady, he's going to die. And the thing that saves him the reference point in both worlds in 96 and 2004, the constant amidst this time traveling that he's doing, the thing that prevents him from going mad is a woman named Penny. And eventually, Penny helps Desmond settle into the present. She serves as this constant that helps him settle in the present. He stops bouncing back and forth between these two times, and he survives. Penny is Desmond's constant. So I want to say as a minister this morning, I'm no expert on the physics and possibilities and complications of time travel. That's not my forte. That's not what catches my heart. What catches my heart is the notion of a constant, something that anchors us in the chaotic swirling of our lives. And I wonder this morning, what are the constants in your life? What anchors you in the turns, in the tumblings, in the transitions in your life? What thread do you hold on to as you cross into these thresholds, as you move into the unknown, as you sit on the curl of the comma? What do you hold on to? Early on in my ministry here, I had a conversation with a member uh, who gave me permission to share this story, and she spoke about how First Universalist was the constant in her life. She shared that her relationship with this church is longer than any other relationship that she's had in her life, longer than she's owned a home, longer than her kids have been alive. She raised them here in this church. And when she falls short in her life, she said, it's this church that calls me back to my core values, that holds up a mirror for me, that reminds me of who I am and how I am meant to be in the world. I'm committed to this church, she said, and through this commitment, I shape the church and the church shapes me. This church is her reference point, her spiritual anchor, her constant through the ups and downs of life and even through the ups and downs that we experience as a community here. So I wonder this morning, what does it mean for the church, for the teachings and the practices of this community to be one's constant? What does that look like? For me, this church and our faith is a constant because it continually invites us to close the gap. I'm not talking about the financial gap, which we're going to try to close today. I'm talking about closing the gap between our values and our actions, between what we say and then what we actually do as people of faith. I'm talking about closing the gap between our assumptions about others and their worldviews and really hearing the lived experiences of others and how they move through this world. Author and educator Parker Palmer talks about the tragic gap in life, this gap between the hard realities we live in and the world we know is possible. There's this tragic gap we all live in between the hard realities we know and the world we know is possible. I believe the church invites us by calling us to listen to where love is calling us next, to practice being welcoming and affirming and protecting, and by working for justice, the church calls us to close the gap between those two worlds as we strive to build beloved community. 
This call can be the constant in your life. Here's what I mean by that. Last Thursday afternoon, I was down at the government center downtown just a day after officer, police officer Mohammed Noor was convicted of the murder of Justine Ruschek. A number of congregants from First Universalist were neighbors of Justine's. And since her murder in July of 2017, they and others, including coalitions from uh, Justice for Jamar, from Black Lives Matter Minneapolis, and many other organizations around the metro area who have lost loved ones at the hands of the police, they have been working together, been advocating for police reform and community oversight of the police for an overhaul of how police are trained. So we were down there together, and in that space, in that moment, I really knew that in part, these congregants had been shaped by the constant of this congregation, our commitment to being a racially just institution. At the rally, Drew Rosier, a church member and a neighbor of Justine's, said these words. What Justine got, we want for everyone impacted by police violence. All victims of police violence deserve to be treated like their lives matter, regardless of what neighborhood the victim lives in, regardless of the race, religion, or ethnicity of the officer or the victim. What Justine has received, we want for everyone. If Justine is the only one to be treated this way, this is not real justice, but another racist wound inflicted on our community. Drew and this coalition are pointing to this constant, to the fact that when we listen deeply to where love is calling us, we see that uprooting white supremacy closes the gap between the hard reality of the world we know and the world we know is possible, the world we dream of. The church can be a constant reminder that another world is possible Another world is about to be born, even as the hatred and vile of white nationalists and white supremacy spill out of the dark corners of the internet. Another world is possible, even as this administration dehumanizes and demonizes and threatens peaceful asylum seekers, people fleeing incredible violence and poverty. Another world is possible, even as this administration enacts immigration policies that are inhumane, and illegal and racist at their core. As I shared back in February, some of the most vulnerable and resilient, resilient asylum seekers are transgender or gender non-conforming people from Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador and Nicaragua. As it stands right now, transgender asylum seekers are frequently detained in Cibola County Correctional Center. This is a federally operated private prison in New Mexico. It's not a good place to be and a number, at least one that is on record, a transgender asylum seeker died in that facility. Being detained is traumatic. You've just left horrific conditions, you have a legal case for asylum, and you're in prison, detained, cut off from the rest of the world for years as your case moves forward. This is your life, this is your reality. Unless someone sponsors you, unless someone sponsors you and agrees to host you and house you, in which case you can be released from detention. And this is exactly what a number of organizations, including the Santa Fe Dreamers Project and the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee, are working to do for transgender asylum seekers. 
These organizations are asking faith communities to sponsor an asylum seeker where an individual congregant or a couple in the congregation will house the asylum seeker, but then the whole congregation wraps around with support, medical support, financial support, transit support, language support, shopping support, everything you can imagine. Back in February, I shared with you that there's a group of congregants who have been listening deeply to where love is calling them next. That's the constant that they are holding onto. And they are clear that their homes are not just for themselves alone. They are clear that they have empty rooms that could be put to use just as we are clear as an institution that this building is not for ourselves alone, but an asset and a resource for our community. And when I sit with these congregants, I feel our connection to the constant, to the call of this church, which is about making love real in this world. So here's the update I wanna share with you this morning. The final paperwork is being prepared and we believe we are weeks away from an asylum seeker being placed with congregants. I wanna be clear, this is not charity, this is not a handout, we are not saviors. We are simply in the small ways that we can, closing the gap between our values and our actions. Imagine you were seeking asylum. Imagine being held in an ICE facility, not getting the care you needed. Imagine how good it would feel to have someone say to you, we see you, we've got your back, we're gonna get you out. So doing this is one more concrete way for us to push back against the hateful rhetoric and the actual violence of our time. This is who we are. This is the constant we follow. This is what we do. When we listen to our love is calling us, when we are connected to that anchoring constant, we are willing to take emotional and financial, spiritual risks in service to justice and love. This is who we are. Back to Lost for a minute. So in this show, Penny, Desmond's constant, ultimately frees him from slipping back and forth from 1996 to 2004, and he grounds back in 2004. She helps him settle, maintain his sanity, live a unified life. The goal of this church as a constant is to liberate us from the paralyzing fear as we are ping-ponging back and forth between this anxiety and this worry, between this thing that's unsettling and a future that feels unknown. It is to help liberate us from narrow-mindedness, from holding tightly. The church helps free us from old ways of being, helps us release the cynicism that comes from too much knowledge and no sense of purpose. When the church and what we practice and teach here becomes our constant, then we know we are here to dismantle white supremacy culture, to push back against the narrative that says it's okay to harm or kill, fear or control, imprison or detain black and brown bodies. When we know what our constant is, we can call out with clarity the need for reform for our police department. We can see clearly when the only police convicted of murder, Muhammad Noor, is a black man and, the, white, and the, the victim is a white woman, we can call that out and name it. The church as a constant offers a way of being, a touchstone, 
so that we come together on Sunday, but then we move into Monday and Tuesday and the rest of the week and the rest of our lives, we move equipped with awakened heart and clarity. That is what the church is here to do. So whether or not you watched this episode or watched Lost at all, I invite you to think about the constants in your life. Those people, things, places that anchor you. And if you haven't already, I invite you to make the church one of those constants, a reference point, a place to take stock, to take inventory on how you're closing the gap between your values and your actions and how you're getting equipped for the days to come. And when you are confused and feel tossed about in your life or are wrestling with bewildering questions that fling you through time and space, come sit in these pews. Come sit in these pews surrounded by a mighty cloud of witnesses, surrounded by the spirit of life. Come touch the constant and let it lead you to more joy, more life, and more love. May it be so. And amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F I R S T U N I V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.